Welcome back to 2020's final episode of Customers Who Click. This week's guest is Ayat Shakuri, who is joining me today to talk about jobs to be done, customer interviews, and the importance of qualitative research. Jobs to be done is something I'm hearing uh, more and more about these days. So if you don't know about it, uh, if you haven't come across it yet, this is going to be a great, uh, great opportunity for you, great episode for you. Um, and Ayat will be digging into why qualitative research is really important and how businesses can get it right. So let's get Ayat on now to explain jobs we've done and some great tips and advice on how to run qualitative research better. Hi Ayat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself, a bit of your background and why you do what you do? So uh, my name is Ayat Shakari. I'm very happy to be here on your podcast today. Uh, I have been doing conversion rate optimization now since 2006. Um, started the company then and really have been kind of modifying that process for the past, what, like now um, almost uh, 14 years. Um, and uh, also I am the co-founder of FigPi, which is a software that uh, essentially is a kind of conversion rate optimization software, which provides heat maps, video recordings, A-B testing, uh, and polls. So I've been, uh, you know, again, like doing this for, for a really long time. And, and uh, as a result, kind of um, building kind of new uh, companies and new experiences for, for clients and, and customers. Awesome. Sounds great. Do you, do you have a particular uh, type of business you like to work with? Are you B2C, e-commerce, B2B? So majority of our clients are actually e-commerce, but we do work with uh, sometimes D2C, B2B companies as well. Um, SaaS has been kind of uh, also a company, the type of kind of clients that come to us could be also SaaS as well. So, I mean, it, it kind of, because when it comes to conversion rate optimization, I think the premise and the model is something that can be applied across the board as long as you understand how to uh, learn and gauge a little bit more about that overall business. Once you collect that information, then implementing that process and, you know, making sure that you're addressing the same kind of uh, issues that you would across the board. I mean, you know, it's, again, it's like a singular process that you can apply, um, but of course it's going to change depending on the type of client. So that's why, you know, we're a little bit agnostic in that sense is that we can handle different types of clients, but it just so happens that the majority of our clients that come to us, almost I would say uh, 70% are e-commerce uh, clients. Yeah, I guess I, I think they just tend to be higher volume and so it make, maybe makes a bit more sense for them or, or they're more aware of it. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like kind of once you've got, I guess, the principles, once you understand those, you can apply them to really any any company. The work is then understanding their the, what the company itself, what it does, who its customers are, what they want. And so whether exactly. that's a different e-commerce industry or if it's B2B, B2C, if it's SaaS, doesn't really matter as long as you can understand how to do that research and figure out what the problems are, what people want from it. Exactly. I mean, I think it's nice. There are some companies that specialize in a specific niche um, and it lets them really kind of delve a little bit deeper and maybe become, um, and they find that they can be a little bit more creative. But we found that our model actually uh, you know, we can still be quite creative and we can still um, have that experience with different types of um, customers and clients that come to us. Uh, I think that that's part of the excitement of the things that I, the, the job that I have is that I get to work with, you know, an assortment of different types of clients and they're coming with different types of problems and you have to solve that problem for them. That to me is kind of what 
you know, keeps me going. Um, and I, and I love that part of the the work. I think if I was working within a, a, the same type of industry, it would just, it wouldn't be as exciting. Um, and the problems that I would have to encounter and solve wouldn't be as challenging. And I like that challenge. And I like to kind of really, uh, get deep into whatever type of client and whatever type of industry they're in to kind of even expand my own horizons. Yeah, exactly. I, I, when I worked in-house, uh, I moved between very different companies, really. They were all, all B2C, um, but just very, very different propositions. And I think I learned more. Um, and I was able to, to kind of bring those learnings into those industries as well. Um, rather than just being exposed to the same stuff you know, every day. So you, you mentioned, you know, obviously, like once kind of once the principles are in place, it's just about like really understanding different businesses, their customers, and things. So you know, we're kind of here today to talk about jobs to be done and uh, and customer interviews. So do you, do you want to tell us, like, kind of introduce us to jobs to be done and, and explain kind of what that's all about? Yeah, absolutely. So. Just to kind of give you a background, you know, one, one thing that I mentioned kind of at the beginning is that we always try to modify our process. So, you know, our company in 2006 is so different than it is right now in 2020. And I think just because of the nature also of the industry um, of digital marketing in general is you need to really be kind of up to speed and up to date and always be modifying and figuring out different ways. So I love meeting different types of uh, people that are doing really cool things with their companies and kind of seeing like, well, can I adopt that and bring it into uh, like my own processes and my own company? Um, so I was really lucky enough a uh, few years back to speak at a conference called Business of Software. Actually, I think that the uh, the founder is in the UK. So um, they, they, and they have two, uh, two different conferences. One, I think that's in the UK and one that is in Boston. Um, every single, I think it's like every year they do two events. But anyway, so I was there, I was a speaker and another speaker that was there from my uh, state that I live in, which is uh, Michigan. I used to live in Michigan and I grew up in Michigan. Um, he was also there and he actually is one of those like kind of the founder implementers of, he's not the founder of the theory or he's not the person that came up with the theory. However, he's one of the first people that adopted the theory of jobs to be done. And he started kind of going into it and the fact that, you know, again, the way that we perceive all products and services, we always look at it kind of from a futuristic perspective and, and why people would necessarily want to you know, buy this particular product. We always ask that question, why? Um, but then when jobs to be done is it's all about understanding, well, what is it that the specific customer, you know, is, is trying to make in terms of progress, right? And it's always about that progress, that every single product or service that you could possibly purchase there is a progress that you want to make, and that's why you're buying it. Um, it could be, you know, a physical progress. It could be a psychological progress. It could be whatever it is. But there is nothing that is kind of that impulse purchase. There was always some sort of kind of like a thought process that happened that brought you to the decision of purchasing that particular product, that particular product or service. So, what jobs to be done is? It's all about trying to understand. Well, what is the job? of this particular product or service, what did the visitor, you know, or the customer hire, 
you know, us for when it comes to this particular product or service? And what is the progress that they wanted to make? When you can unlock those things from the customer, then the opportunities in terms of innovation and in terms of understanding really that value that the product or service is bringing to the table is is unbelievable. And, you know, again, we've been using this theory and with many of our clients and it's kind of changed the game for us in terms of providing that value and making sure that value is apparent on the website and on that experience overall for the visitor. Um, So that's kind of in a nutshell of what it is. It's, again, understanding that job that that particular product or service is doing for the actual customer. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, uh, uh, could you give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for instance, and, and this is one kind of like one of the famous examples of jobs to be done, not one that we've necessarily um, applied, and I'll give kind of examples from our own experience as well, but um, the really famous one is the milkshake uh, theory, and this is where um, they were actually... Uh, a McDonald's approached the founder of Jobs to Be Done, and his um, and he's kind of a professor at uh, Harvard or was a professor at Harvard. He uh, Clayton Christensen. He recently um, this earlier this year actually passed away, um, and he they they approached him and said that you know we want to increase the sale the sales of our milkshakes, but we're struggling, you know, and, and they go to any type of marketing company. And it's always the same thing. Let's add these different features. Let's make sure that, you know, the advertisements are in this way. And we highlight, you know, the consistency and we highlight the toppings and whatever it is. Um, and so he's like, well, no, you know, the, the reason is you're always asking the why question, the obvious question that any type of marketer would ask, but we really need to ask like, okay, well, let's, let's approach this a little bit differently and see when, are people purchasing the milkshake. And so they started observing just customers in general, and they noticed that there were two types of customers. There was the morning purchaser and there was the afternoon purchaser. And so when they kind of delved a little bit deeper to that morning purchaser, they recognized that these people were usually commuting. They needed to grab something quick during their commute. They needed to have something that would fill them up and sustain them before lunch. They needed something that wasn't going to be messy. So those are all the jobs that the milkshake was really doing for them. Um, And again, like, you know, when you're thinking about the competitor landscape, it's not about, okay, like Wendy's, you know, whatever uh, milkshake or uh, Burger King's milkshake. No, it's really like, do I pick up a banana or a bagel or do I get a milkshake? And people were preferring the milkshake also because the commute was long and it took long to drink the milkshake. As you know, it's a little bit thick. So again, it takes a little bit longer. So all of these things were uncovered after they started asking different kind of questions and understanding those jobs and understanding the progress that these visitors wanted to make when it came to that commute. Um, and, and that kind of changed the game for, you know, McDonald's and the way that they marketed the product. It, it went into, again, like all of the different marketing aspects of the milkshake. It changed completely how they approached it and what they would say about it and how they would advertise for it and et cetera. So, again, that's kind of like one of those primary um, examples. And the afternoon buyer was um, the buyer essentially that 
you know, was a parent that was saying no, no, no to their kids all day and then, you know, kind of felt really bad and wanted to treat them with something, but they wanted it to be, again, not messy. Um, You know, and again, I'm a parent, so I can kind of uh, see the point of view. And then, you know, I guess like somewhat healthy, in this case, I don't really think a milkshake is healthy, but that's how the parents saw the, the milkshake, that it was a good alternative versus other kind of junk that the, the kids could uh, possibly consume. Yeah, and so I guess, they would go ahead. I guess yeah, it's, uh, ahead. it's seen as a, a healthier alternative to like a soda. Exactly, exactly. It has milk, it has, you know, whatever. And it's also fun for the kids. You know, it's like kind of like close to ice cream, but not exactly as unhealthy as ice cream. I don't know. I mean, obviously an argument could be made that that's completely like, you know, false, but, but, uh, you know, but it gave again, that information to, you know, McDonald's to say, well, you know, the way that we approach the marketing now targeting these two different segments is going to be completely different because now we understand what are those jobs that they have when it comes to the milkshake. Um, so it, it really changes the, that value again, that they're seeing the milkshake and, uh, and, and so again, it would inform all of the different marketing initiatives that they would have, um, and the approach. And so, you know, again, like when we adopted this, we would take it and, you know, for instance, um, we conduct interviews for recently, we worked with a subscription based, uh, technology, uh, publication and, Again, they've done their research. This technology of publication is very well known. They they know that their customers are a certain profile. But what we started to do when we were conducting interviews is that we were finding that there was actually more of an emotional uh, tie to the uh, the publication. So you know, some of the interviews that we conducted, um, they the visitors were describing the fact that this publication actually helped them. Um, communicate and have good conversations with loved ones. Um, so, you know, for example, one woman described the connection that it gave her and her daughter. That again, in a typical marketing kind of landscape and a typical um, situation, you wouldn't be able to extract that information. Another uh, person described the fact that, you know, whenever he'd visit his friend, you know, this this man was kind of entering retirement, but he would visit his friend. He always wanted new topics and interesting topics to discuss. And that's why he subscribed to the this publication. Um, so again, like, you know, we kept on seeing that theme over and over again. And that kind of changes. Well, then how do we display that information and make sure we capture visitors and let them know that this is actually uh, a publication that's going to help you achieve that, right? And really, because again, it's that job of connection with other people, with other humans, with loved ones, with friends. Um, and and that's really, you know, what we were able to kind of find from, from our interviews is that this information could be very useful to any type of marketing initiative, again, that the, the, the company, uh, the publication is going to launch or within the website itself. Um, we would also make sure we kind of address that. Yeah, so so just going back to that last example, I think so the the kind of the job that the magazine is fulfilling is not to necessarily to educate the the reader on on the content; it's to provide them with the information they need to be able to have a conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely, and and again, that wasn't the only job, but that's the one kind of like that I kind of highlighted that was a little bit um, unique. No, there were other jobs where it was maybe kind of educational uh, uh, driven, etc. But 
uh, our aim is again to find out to dig a little bit deeper because the very top of mind answer that you would typically get from any type of visitor that you ask that would subscribe to this publication would say that, hey, it's because I want to like, you know, advance my knowledge, right? And I think we can both say that we could probably come to that conclusion without even interviewing any customers, right? Um, so, so again, a lot of times the way that we ask questions, we can sometimes get really top of mind answers from the visitor, but the the thing about jobs to be done is that we're really trying to actually go to their subconscious. So the way that I interview is I'm really going to dig deeper and try to understand so much more from the visitor's perspective. I want to really understand what brought them to that moment. And I want to zoom into that moment. Well, why was today the day that you decided to subscribe? What was happening? What was going on? You know, what was what were some of the conversations that you had? Who are the people that you talked to? Um, and the reason why we kind of dig deeper is really trying to nudge them and try to really kind of figure out what it was that led them to that moment and that decision. Um, and, uh, and, and again, another really important thing is understanding the first time they thought of it. Because again, a lot of people think that, oh, it was an impulse. I just decided to do this. You know, I just decided to go, I saw a mattress at, you know, Costco and I just decided to buy the mattress. No, <laughs> you didn't just decide. When you dig deeper and you understand, actually, there's been a history where this guy was like struggling and trying to find the right mattress, right? You've, the, these people were thinking about this publication for a while and they were going through different moments that led them to that final decision. And really understanding that kind of timeline gives you a lot of perspective on that service and, oh, how can I now market it better with knowing this information? Yeah. Yeah. And I know what you mean. Like you ask people and it's just, I, I mean, I'm sure that's the answer I would give as well. Um, if you ask me about, you know, my most recent dozen purchases, why I'd actually bought them on that day or at that moment. And it would just be, oh yeah, just because I kind of thought of it and decided to buy it. But that's not right. That's not really why it happened. There, there must be a reason I've finally decided to make that purchase, um, even, exactly. even if I haven't really thought about it too much. Um, right. Like sometimes people say, "Well, oh, there was a sale," right? And and that's you know a lot of times that's what drives people is like you know they might say, "Well, the price is right," etc. But you know you're not just going to go buy like you know even even something like clothes unless there's kind of like that something that built up that led you to that, you know, final decision that, um, when you kind of pulled the trigger and decided, um, but whenever we do interview though, it is very important that you interview first purchasers, not somebody that, you know, has been buying for a while from this specific type of company or, you know, um, they've never, so it's very important that the type of person that you're targeting with these questions uh, is again, like that first purchaser, because you're going to get a lot more value and it has to be also recent. I can't be asking somebody about something that they decided to do two years ago. Um, so those yeah. are kind of some critical components when you're really sitting down and conducting these interviews. Yeah. I suppose the, the, if, if you're asked someone who's bought, bought it multiple times, I suppose that, that job is still there, but it's, I guess, a bit more difficult to explain it at that point. They've exactly. just, you know, it's, it fulfills that job. It's been doing it for ages. They just keep doing it. 
Exactly. Like it's hard to pinpoint those, that timeline that I kind of am describing that we're trying to really extract from the, from the customer. Yeah. I, I have another actually um, really good example of this is um, the, the person that I told you the, the, um, the, that I met at the conference business of software, his name is Bob Mesta. And, uh, and he actually, before he, kind of when he was kind of into the jobs to be done theory and was really clo- close to Clayton Christensen. And, uh, and he was working with a company that did construction um, and they were building kind of like these apartments in Detroit and they were meant to really target people that were trying to downsize. Um, but it would kind of give them really like kind of a comfortable uh, life, you know, like it was a nice apartment, but it was much smaller than what they were looking for. So they're looking for kind of empty nesters, um, people that were maybe like, you know, recently widowed or something like that. Um, And so after kind of conducting some of the interviews, these jobs to be done interview and understanding again, the job, uh, what they recognized was that, you know, a lot of people, for instance, again, um, when they're thinking about downsizing, or they're thinking about the fact that this change in their life, they're concerned about one of the concerns that they had was, of course, the fact that, you know, they have this dining room table that's really like a staple in uh, the apartment and uh, or sorry, in their homes. And that's where they had all their birthdays and all their Christmas dinners and all their gatherings that were around this dining table. So it's kind of like this um heirloom of the family, essentially. And uh, when they would go to these apartments, you know, they would see that because the the builders tried to make the master bedroom a little bit larger. So the dining space was very small, so they could never fit their dining table there. Um, And so by, you know, understanding a little bit more and having these jobs to be done and thinking about the job that this apartment was supposed to do for them, they were able to recognize that oh, they need to expand the dining room table and they needed to figure out ways to facilitate the move for a lot of these people because, again, they're elderly. Uh, so, again, it's just about having those conversations and then it provides you with a lot of solutions for the product or service that you have um, and you're able to kind of do a much better job in addressing some of the concerns that the the customers have. Yeah, exactly. So, I guess the like a, a normal customer interview might be around like just what is it you want from home and what are the what are some of the key features or and things like that whereas the jobs to be done would tell them that actually in the customer interview they said i don't know they want a large bedroom they need a large large bedroom that's what they want but in jobs to be done the answer would actually be could be something completely different because actually they just want the bedroom to sleep in and therefore, to sleep and you don't need that bigger bedroom. Yeah, that'd be absolutely. right. Or I completely just made <laughs> made no, something. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And again, it, like it, it uh, there's so many things that it would inform. But yes, like a customer interview, the questions typically. And we used to conduct customer interviews all the time, way before jobs to be done. Um, but we would conduct them like a typical way. You know, we'd ask the customer what they like, what they didn't like about the product or service, etc. So what you're getting again is that top of mind answer. But when I'm 
conducting a jobs to be done interview, I'm asking them, when did you buy this? When was the first time that you thought of, you know, this particular thing? Who was involved in the process? What was going on in your life? And we're kind of really trying to dig deeper into questions that they might find are irrelevant to the actual, uh, you know, like the actual product or service. But, you know, from our perspective, we're saying those things and we're asking those things so we can understand that really that timeline we could understand the progress that they wanted to make and we can bridge that gap yeah so would it um does it kind of use a little bit like the the five i think it's the five whys i think that it's used in tech a lot um you kind of ask a question and then when they give the answer you ask why and then they'll yeah. answer that and you ask why again and you do that f- kind of five times, or it might be as many times as it takes, but I think it's generally around five times to get to the actual reason why they they did something in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it could be similar, but I mean, what I found doing this now for a few years is that really crafting the questions is also very critical because uh, people tend to really answer with, kind of like yes or no, <laughs> if they can get away with it, or like one-liners that give you kind of no uh, kind of detail. So you have to really force the conversation and, um, you know, make them talk about things that, again, might be unrelated. Like we were, uh, we had a customer that sells dancing uh, videos online. And so when we were interviewing, you know, customers, this one interview in particular kind of sticks to mind, uh, you know, Again, they were answering kind of the questions as they go along. And then at the end, they mentioned how they had a son that was ill in, you know, uh, in another state and how they would go visit the son and how the couple that was hosting them were, were like very much in love and they would always kind of be dancing together. So that was a trigger, you know, that was a trigger and that when they saw the ad for the dancing video, their mind went back to that. But again, we had to dig a lot and we had to to get that information from them. Um, and to see that, you know, again, like it's something that that, that connection and seeing that the, that couple and, you know, again, like, you know, the fact that they took care of their son, but you know, they they seemed like they had such a great relationship and they were dancing. That's what stuck with them. That's what resonated. Uh, and, and that's kind of really what brought them then when they saw the ad to make the decision. Again, when you first talked to them, they were like, oh, like we saw the ad and we just decided to do it. No, there was so much more. Or I saw the ad and Valentine's Day was coming up and I decided to get this for my wife. But when you kind of dig deeper, you're able to kind of get so much more information from the, from the visitor, from the customers. Yeah. Yeah. There's always that, like, like for example, the, the Valentine's day gift, there would still be a, like why this particular gift. Right. Right. And then if that person can answer that, it's well, why, like, why does she want that? Like why? Yeah. I guess I'm still going, still going down the route of those whys, but <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I, I kind of see, yeah, you're, you're digging into that reason. It's like um, with the price, like the sale that you mentioned earlier. Um, the fact that it's on sale is not the reason they bought the product. It's the reason they bought it at that moment. Right. Or it's one of the reasons they bought it at that moment. Um, but if that was really the answer, then it means you could put a sale tag on anything and put it in front of them and say, well, there you go. This is on sale. Yeah. Buy it. 
well, that's, you know, that's not going to happen because that's not really the reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are, I guess, what, what are some of the biggest, big mistakes you see with people approaching qualitative research? So customer research and I guess jobs to be done. Uh, I think it kind of goes back to, again, um, maybe some people in general trying to just get quick kind of wins and quick answers um, from from customers uh, for a very long time when it first came out, the little polls that come up on websites, those were super popular. And a lot of companies would rely on the data from those polls. You know, they would put so much emphasis on it and, and they would put, you know, a lot of, um, make a lot of decisions based on the answers that they would get from those polls. And while we do conduct polls, a lot of times the the way that we conduct the polls is based on some of the jobs to be done interviews. So after I've kind of aggregated the data, then I'm going to kind of just ask and see certain questions that I want to make sure that this actually, because I'm going to interview like whatever, 20 customers. So I have to validate that that information actually applies across the board to more customers, right? Like a bigger kind of customer base. Um, so that validation can happen through polls. But when I'm just asking random questions on polls, I'm going to get top of mind uh um, you know, answers. And so I always love this example of um, that during the uh, the industrial revolution, uh, they were building all these skyscrapers and what they didn't really think of is uh, the the elevators or the lifts as, as you guys call them in, in the UK, they just would build like one in a building like that's like, you know, whatever, 10 stories or, you know, 15 stories high. Um, so it was becoming really difficult for people and, and people were complaining a lot that they would go into these elevators and they would feel squished and they would feel like, you know, they couldn't breathe and it was, it was extremely difficult for them. So when they asked people, like, what should we do about this? They would say, oh, like, you know, obviously build more elevators. And, uh, and that seems like the obvious, you know, answer, but the reality is that for a lot of these, you know, companies, that means hundreds of thousands of dollars in infrastructure that they maybe at that time really didn't have, they didn't have the ability to do that. So they needed a quick solution that would just comfort people. And so what they did was based on the answers, people, again, were complaining about the space and where to put their eyes and et cetera. That's why they, included mirrors in elevators because it gives the sense that the elevator is a lot bigger. So again, it's like kind of like a psychological answer to making sure that at least for time being, they could be a little bit more comfortable by having kind of that mirror. And then also it gives you a little bit more ability to not stare at people or stare at yourself or da 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 like you know like it, it gave them a lot more flexibility when they put those mirrors inside and so that's why now actually if you go into a lot of elevators you're fine mirrors because it's something that actually was passed down since the industrial revolution but again asking people the question you get top of mind answers another really good one is um like heinz ketchup when they did a field uh, study and they brought in a bunch of moms and they're like oh we have this really cool concept of different colors of ketchup, purple ketchup, green ketchup, blue ketchup. I don't know if you remember that, but this is like something that happened. God, I want to say end of 90s. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I, 
I don't know if I actually remember purple ketchup or if I've just seen <laughs> the pictures and, and stuff online. Yeah, um, so but, that, but yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware of it. Yeah, so so people, green, you know, I think, I think green yeah, green, green. I think purple. I forgot there was a third color, but anyways, maybe blue. But anyway, so they brought these moms moms in and these kids, and they did a uh, kind of ask them what do you think, and they were so excited, and people were like loving it, right? Then they took it to market and it just completely flopped because who wants like green ketchup on their, you know, like their hot dog. It looks like it's like, you know, like rotting or something like that. Or like, again, like, you know, what job did it really do? Like, so sometimes adding these features to a product that's working isn't really going to help advance that product. But understanding the job a little bit better, if Heinz went back and tried to understand that job a little bit better, then maybe they could then reinvent and innovate based on that. But just colored ketchup, it just was too unusual for people. So they took it to market and it just flopped completely and they lost hundreds of thousands of dollars as a yeah, result. It seems like an interesting idea. Oh, yeah, make it more fun. But then, yeah, the, the moment you actually see the hot dog or something with purple or green ketchup on it, even in a picture you kind of think, I, I don't really want to buy that. I don't really want to <laughs> exactly. put that on my plate. Um, that actually just it reminded me of a video I watched actually just shortly before we started recording um, about a company that does, um, it's getting a lot of stick for uh, doing lots of limited edition runs of their of, of product lines. So they will launch, they're, they're a, hobby, um, a hobby business. They will launch a lot of these kind of specialist games where they'll do, I don't know, let's say 50,000 units of that product and then that's it. If it's Once it's sold out, it's sold out. Um, and they're getting a lot of criticism because, you know, lots of people want them. They feel like it creates false fear of missing out and, and stuff like that, which it kind of does. But the issues are mainly production-wise. But actually, so there was one game in particular that sold really, really badly. And even like years later, it was still on the shelves in the stores and just no one wanted it. And they found out that um, one of the big reasons people don't want it is because they couldn't use the models from that box in combination with anything else. Whereas most other things, you know, you could take it from one game and just use it in another. And that model could still be was still kind of valid. It was still useful. But this one game that sold really badly is because it wasn't because the game was bad or the models themselves were bad. It was just because they couldn't be used in along with anything else. Yeah, and that was kind of that. I guess that yeah, kind of like jobs to be done thing. I guess like you know, people will buy up the other boxes because they think, well, I might play this game, but I can also use these cool models with the, the games that I like to play. But yeah, this one absolutely. particular box didn't fulfill that criteria, and therefore people just didn't buy it. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I think in general, again, like for them, sometimes coming up with new concepts and new ideas and new limited editions you have to think of, well, why are people, and you know, what is it again about this, this product that people are coming to and attracted? Yeah. Maybe it's the fact that it's limited edition, but there's something else, there's something deeper. So I think that that's kind of where they had to go back and say, well, and and probably they did and figured, figured out, but after it was too late, they already produced this uh, particular product that people just didn't like to buy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it probably means they'll do well, yeah, it should just mean they never go back to that game again, because it just, it, yeah, it just doesn't really, doesn't really work. It just doesn't fit in um, with, with, yeah. with the stuff they do. 
Um, do you see any kind of trends coming up in the way businesses use qualitative feedback uh, and research and, and jobs to be done? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely more companies, and I think this is you see it just because um, the, in, it's becoming so much more difficult to market your specific product or service. So I think a lot of companies now are doubling down on qualitative research more than they used to. And now some companies, for example, there's in, in UX, there's something called design thinking. And I think really a lot of these theories, whether it's jobs to be done or design, design thinking, they really are in line. So there could be multiple things that people can do that can really kind of push them forward and get them forward to, again, that point of innovation. And I think that that's the whole point of jobs to be done is how do I you know, have this product that, again, people are making progress with? I understand that progress, but based on what I understand from that progress, how can I now innovate and and you know really like be become even better and it's good to see that a lot of companies are following this approach and they're they're trying to gauge and understand a little bit more from uh from customers and they're adapting and adopting these different theories to make sure that they're um they're going to be they're going to be able to compete at a different level when it comes to again, innovating within their industry, marketing, and grabbing kind of the attention of the of the consumer. <clears throat> so I do see that there's a positive trend in the sense that people are becoming a lot more aware and they're um, trying to implement some of these strategies within their company. But I think we still have a long way, a long way to go uh, in the sense that, you know, sometimes when I talk to, about jobs to be done uh, at conferences, there are only a couple of people that have heard about it um, and they don't necessarily implement something like that within their, their organizations. Um, a lot of times customer uh, companies might not even try to contact, you know, their customers and even just talk to them and have conversations with them. So there, there's still work to be done, but I do see that there is like a greater trend in trying to adapt these. And that's kind of very positive to see that, well, you know, finally, you know, again, we always talk about customer first and thinking about the customer, but finally, we're actually implementing it and and putting our money where our mouth is. Yeah, absolutely. I think I at least hear of it a lot more in startups. You know, people realizing the value of actually speaking to their their customers, particularly early customers, um, to find out, you know, uh, it's, you know, it might be kind of an MVP product even. Um, and they will ask, you know, speak to those first customers. Why did they sign up? Um, what did they think about the products? What value are they getting out of it? Um, but I feel that does get a bit lost in bigger companies. Um, yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's just because no one has responsibility for it or no one takes responsibility for it and it kind of falls through the gaps. Um, but, I've, you know, I've been in some you know, fairly big companies and there's no feedback coming from customer service, which seems to, which would be a great place for it. You know, finding out why people are actually contacting the company, what complaints they have, what issues they have, what questions they have, and how can those uh, pieces of information be, you know, fed back into, you know, an optimization team or the web team to make the website better, to deal with those problems before they happen. Absolutely. And I think that that's always the problem with lar larger organizations is that it takes them a lot, a long time to be able to, to change. 
right? They're really set in their ways. They've been doing this, you know, for so long. They're comfortable in the sense that they're, you know, like making, you know, money and they're, they're not seeing kind of like that need to change and innovate. Although it could really take their product or service to the, you know, to a much higher level. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, smaller companies are more nimble. They're able to like kind of adapt and change and add different, you know, kind of processes into whatever they already do. Um, so we have kind of like this uh, in, in my kind of sometimes when I, when I present at conferences and a slide deck where, you know, the big fish used to always eat up the small fish. But now, you know, with these smaller companies that are coming up, they're able to kind of make actually a difference. And they're really letting those kind of larger companies uh, run, make a run for their money um, because they're, innovating in a way that larger companies are just unable to because they don't adapt and they're not able to um, optimize their processes to make sure that they include better ways to pull that qualitative research or even quantitative research and how to incorporate that. You know, so like there's a big key element is like, okay, it's really great that you conducted all these customer interviews. Now, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> like, yeah. How is it going to, how is it going to inform all your marketing? You know, so it's one thing to actually do it. And it's a whole other thing to actually implement it and make changes. Um, so I was telling you about those, uh, the apartments, they changed the whole layout of the apartments to make sure that they accommodated the dining table. Uh, you know, when we talk to the customers about the dancing interviews, the emotional side of things, you know, meaning like, you know, there was always some emotion attached or um, the dance, the couples that came to us typically had some relationship problems. Um, and so addressing that on the landing page and making sure that, you know, we show kind of like that before and after and kind of invoking that feeling of like, oh, this can kind of restore some of our relationships, some of the intimacy that we've been lacking in, in our life that, you know, made a huge difference for the customers. And we were able to see um, a really amazing growth and, and increasing conversion rates as a result. So, so again, like, because these companies um, are nimble and they're able to change. And I think the fact that they're even open to conversion rate optimization, it, it helps, you know, right? Because I—that's what we do. We do conversion rate optimization. Qualitative research is a very important piece of CRO overall, um, and and then you know, kind of again taking them through uh, that journey, and they're able to kind of really adapt their companies as a result of that to incorporate all these different aspects. Even if you know, for example, we go away a lot of times our clients will continue to do a lot of the different work. They're kind of learning from us so that they can adapt it within their own organizations. Um, you know, after, after we've kind of given them the, uh, that foundation. Yeah, you're right. Smaller companies tend do tend to move quicker from what I've seen, um, from what I've experienced. Um, and you tend to get in, in bigger companies again, from what I've experienced, lots of technical debt. So on the technical side, there's always that, well, we, we can't build this because it doesn't really, it's not really compliant with our current systems. And we know our current systems are really old and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and then on the marketing teams, yeah, a lot of the time they are kind of like under-resourced and, and overworked, I guess. So they have to focus on just optimizing their ads and just tweaking keywords and things and just trying to drive up the, uh, the click-through rate drive the cost per click down or the, the and the CPA down, but without really being able to experiment creatively 
um, and and kind of do the interviews that would help dig out that that crucial bit of information that would help them say, well, actually, the strategy we're using is all right, but based on this feedback, people want a completely different message from it, which we think would work better. And they just don't have the time to actually find that out and and then implement it, particularly yeah, at the risk of maybe having lower performance in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've worked with companies actually um, that if you don't have kind of like buy-in from everybody within the organization to do conversion rate optimization, because it does touch sometimes the back end, you know, like a lot of experiments that we run, we don't want to only do front end experiments because that's not going to move the needle. Um, a lot of times it has to do with that back end and making sure that we can make some adjustments so that we're delivering a better experience for the visitor. And, uh, and so you have a lot of resistance. So it's, it's kind of important to make sure that you do kind of have that back, that buy-in because um, like you said, the marketing teams are stretched thin. And so if the marketing team is coming to you for help, but the technical team hasn't bought into what you're going to be doing, then <laughs> you're going to run into some major issues because you have to rely on that technical team as well. So I've seen all sorts of companies in terms of like how slow they move and how they're able to implement. And then that really does inform or that does kind of result in the overall success of the project that you're going to be running for them. Uh, you know, again, like we run these big scale conversion rate optimization companies. Well, if you really do want to see a six, 65% increase in your, you know, bottom line, then you have to be moving forward, testing, experimenting with different things, understanding kind of um, that research and implementing it on the website. Uh, so the type of organizations matter. And when we do work with large companies, it's always a struggle to kind of get, um, you know, kind of deep into those changes. Um, but, you know, again, it's the, the way that you go about it. And again, trying to get buy-in from all the different areas. So um, we worked with uh, eBay and we just had to get buy-in from like the technical team and that CTO in order for us to make sure that we can implement the concepts that we had in mind. Because otherwise with a large organization like eBay, it's a struggle to make changes and they move slow. Everything moves slow. Um, there's a lot of red tape uh, and uh, you just have to be, make sure that you're able to navigate that. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, it's one of these kind of areas of marketing, which, yeah, it's, it, it is more difficult and more time consuming to get going with because it, it's, you can't just work with the marketing team and get going or, or just with the, uh, you know, the, the kind of front end web team, you have to get right. that technical buy-in um, because the, the big, the big opportunities are the ones that are going to require a bit, a bit of work, a bit of, you know, technical work. Absolutely. Um, kind of moving on uh, a bit because yeah, I think we're running out of time. Do you, do you have any pet peeves when it comes to marketing? It's interesting because actually my uh, business partner partner and I were actually talking about this recently where, you know, you have some of these uh, marketing personalities that sometimes uh, make, they uh, become very popular and they have a huge following and then they get kind of stuck in their ways and they only start repeating that same exact information. Although I think that, you know, when it comes to marketing and digital marketing, um, there's lots of growth opportunities and there's um, lots of innovation that needs to happen within our industry. So 
you know, always uh, just kind of relying on that. Like once I've collected kind of, I created my tribe and now I spout the same information over and over again. And that's a huge pet peeve of mine because it's just like, no, we should always be changing and, you know, adapting new things and learning and not just trying to kind of build a, a, a tribe around us and then just, you know, sticking to that and not really changing um, away from that. Um, so that's kind of one thing that, you know, recently kind of came up in discussion. But another thing that um, bothers me is, again, like, uh, and I think we kind of touched on this right before, is this like kind of um, effect where the silo effect where everything is kind of separate in these organizations. Um, so we actually had a recent client where again, like the communication between the technical team and the marketing team was just almost non-existent. Um, the fact that the uh, marketing team didn't have control over things that they should have control over just was mind boggling. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, again, that causes these organizations to completely, you know, like shut down when an outside consultant comes in and, be, and says, hey, like, what's going on here? You know, like you, you come in and you're trying to kind of really address the situation. Um, but, it, you know, it's helpful because I think like it gets these organizations to kind of rethink that structure and making sure that there is that communication. But I think that that's also a pet peeve is like till now you still see this. I mean, this is something that we've been talking about for God, I want to say like two decades that, you know, there has to be kind of like this communication and everybody has to be on the same page and da da da. They're not separate entities. And a lot of the way, a lot of these organizations are built in a way where they're just completely separate and there's very little communication between them. So those are kind of some of the pet peeves that I have. Yeah, I'm very, very familiar with that second one. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, and, and part of it's what I mentioned earlier about resources and, and targets and things that make it almost, just make it difficult to, to unsilo because people just don't have time to do it. And if you don't understand the value of another department to yours, that again just, just causes a blocker to, to anyone even bothering to to try to unsilo, um, so I think there are yeah, there are kind of company structure issues around that, but also yeah, just kind of overworking people and getting them too focused on what their immediate role is, which means that they don't have the time or ability to be creative and and look at uh, you know take that wider view on things. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Um, so I, I think, again, like it's just, it goes back to also the type of structure that you have in place. And uh, sometimes when things are working in a certain way and people find, well, you know, like we're hitting the revenue numbers and whatnot, it, it, it's diff more difficult for these companies to kind of be like, oh no, we really need to to rethink and change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and just finally, do you, do you think there's a particular area of marketing which is underrated at the moment? Um, I think that, I don't know if I would say that it's underrated per se, um, but I certainly do think that, again, and I go, go, go back to kind of just qualitative um, research and the way to collect that information is often something that I feel like is very straightforward, yet you know, little reliance on it. 
Um, so I don't know that companies necessarily underrate it, uh, but they just maybe just don't know how to go about doing it uh, or they go about it wrong. Um, so I, I think that that's kind of one area that I wish to see more um, people kind of engage in and find correct ways to collect that information because it could be really a game changer for a lot of organizations. Um let me think if I have any other underrated. Um, I think that sometimes, and this could be a little bit controversial, is that sometimes some companies like to do everything in-house. And, you know, of course, coming from the consultant, right? This is like kind of terrible. But I really do think that that's, that it, it really impacts a company negatively. Um, it, you know, trying to do all the marketing in-house and, again, stretching the team thin and not having the influx of new ideas can be very detrimental. Uh, and, and growing out all of those things within the organization is just going to be more expensive. And sometimes if you don't have the expertise, it could kind of lead to more disastrous results. So that's why I, I believe that even within my own organization, there are some things that we outsource. And we find that we have a lot more value in doing that and we're able to see, again, perspectives that we may have not considered if we tried to do it in-house. Um, and, and that gives us the ability to really hone in on what we do very well. Um, so, you know, we're really good at conversion rate optimization. We're always trying to innovate when it comes to CRO and improve our process. So bringing other um, marketing consultants to do other things for us, whether it's PPC or, um uh, any type of kind of digital advertising where, you know, that's not our forte, that's not our expertise. It's just very useful. And I, and I think that it's underrated when it comes to a lot of companies, they try to do, let's just bring it in house. Let's just bring it in house. And I could see the perspective of in house from a financial perspective, but it doesn't always work that way. Um, and again, I think you lose again, that third party perspective that can really change the way that you look at things. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I was actually, yeah, talking to someone about this the other day. I think there are different sizes and scales where different setups do make sense. Um, yeah, it, you know, it might be that an agency makes sense early on because you can be a bit more flexible, you know, for something like PPC. And then when you get to a certain scale, maybe having the in-house team is better because you've got those people dedicated to working on PPC for you. Yeah. Um, but I think I do see, particularly with consultants, a lot of consultants, especially like in the companies that I've worked in, when we've brought in consultants, it's because something's going wrong and we need that expertise to come in and help fix it. And it's not been great, things are going well. Let's get someone in to see what we've missed or what the next opportunity might be or whatever. It's always, hang on a minute, things aren't going right. Let's, let's quickly bring someone in to, to help us fix it. Yeah. So like a company's already in disaster mode. <laughs> let's, let's see what the consultant can do. Um, yeah. I agree 100%. I think it, like being proactive about it when you're doing well, um, again, and it's about like just taking your company to that next level and getting a different perspective could be really, it could really change your, your company altogether. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, if, uh, if you, if you want to, you know, it doesn't even have to be that long a relationship. So financially wise, it doesn't have to cost you 
like hundreds of thousands of pounds of dollars. You know, you can yeah. work with a consultant for a month or two or even three. Whereas if you want to hire that person, you're kind of kind of committing to, you know, well, in the UK, three months, three or six months, if you've got a, a um, probation period. And if it doesn't work out, you then have to go through the hiring process again. So, yeah. So that's, it's always a struggle because I mean, I, I'm like, when it comes to hiring, I have uh, like a lot of experience there and it's not always pretty. Um, and, and, uh, you know, keeping somebody and making sure that they're the right fit, et cetera, culturally, like, you know, within the company, like the culture that they can just mesh with everybody as well as all the other aspects in terms of like their performance, et cetera. Um, it's a struggle. It's not easy. And, you know, you're always looking for certain uh, qualities when you're hiring that honestly, it's really hard to figure them out, you know, when you're doing interviews, because you get just kind of like that, that really good um, first impression that people try to put on. So, so yeah, you know, I think uh, that's why I think just uh, consulting in general could be very, very helpful for um, companies. And I think, like you said, project basis, We've had multiple, you know, clients do that where they kind of test the waters to begin with, maybe for a three-month engagement. Um, and they see, you know, especially if there's no experimentation that's happening on their website altogether. Um, so again, like I think it's it's very plausible to do something like that, especially when it comes to digital marketing. You can kind of plug in and plug out um fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. This has been really great stuff. Uh, really interesting. And I hope um, a lot more people or I hope people who listen to this uh, go check out Jobs To Be Done. Um, if people want to find out more from you or, or get in touch, what's the best way of doing that? So I definitely recommend that people go visit my LinkedIn profile. I'm definitely um, very active on LinkedIn and I answer questions and um, you know requests for people to connect with me, et cetera. Um, I also, you can contact me via email if you have any questions, ayat at invesp, I-N-V as in Victor, E-S-P as in Paul.com. Um, my name, my first name is A-Y-A-T, and I'm sure, sure you'll include that in the in the notes. Yep. Um, yeah. And if you'd like to learn more about FigPi, we do offer kind of a 14-day trial, and that's, again, that tool that provides the heat maps, video recording, and A-B testing. Um, yeah, I know that those tools typically could be very expensive, and our tool, because um, it was an in-house tool that we just use with our clients that we've just recently made it kind of more available to the general public. So it's priced fairly, you know, uh, uh, low compared to what else is out there. So it might be a consideration for any uh, anybody that's looking for something like that. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem. Thank you, Will. Qualitative research is super important for any business and has been around for years. You know, everyone knows it. You, you probably did some some yourself at school or university. But when it comes to research for a business, it can get more complicated. There are, you know, the obvious questions around the product itself. How do customers feel about it? What would they change? How was their delivery experience? Things like that. You know, all, all these can help you make tweaks and changes to your business to improve the experience. But Jobs to be Done gives you that deeper insight and understanding as it helps explain what was going on in someone's head when they decided to go ahead with the purchase. If you ask someone why they purchased today, you'll get answers like, oh, I saw it was on sale, or I was just browsing and decided to buy it. But these are really vague answers that don't really tell you anything. You know, The sale was actually just a trigger and a motivator to finally make that decision to purchase. But deeper down, there is a job that the product does for the customer, and it's not just explained by the features of the product alone. 
you don't just buy it because you need a jacket to keep you uh, dry or warm. There is some sort of deeper reason why you've decided to buy that jacket at that time. Um, you might have had a, you know, some sort of trip to go on, and that's the real reason you want it. It's for that trip and that adventure that you're going on. You've got to be digging deeper and deeper. You know, ask why again and again, and eventually you'll find the real reason people are buying from you. If you'd like to learn more about jobs to be done and customer interviews, reach out to IAT on LinkedIn. Um, as it's the end of the year, drop me an email to will at customers who click and let me know what your favorite customer experience has been in 2020. Whether it's an advertisement, messaging on a website, customer service experience, anything like that, I'd love to hear from you. When we reconvene in the new year, I'll be joined by Sarah Kristen of Molio, uh, who we, we, heard from, uh, we heard from their founder a few episodes ago. And we'll be talking about how brands can be using data alongside the creative side of the business to really optimize their marketing and understand what messages are really appealing to the audience. But until then, keep those customers clicking.